Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in. My name is Megan Zanette, and I'm a current articling student here at Glayhold Bowles LLP. I'm joined today by Brendan Bowles, a partner at Glayhold Bowles, and Marcus Rotterdam, the director of research at Glayhold Bowles. And we're here to discuss the recent activity in the law relating to bankruptcies in the construction industry. Thank you very much, Megan and Marcus. Great to do this podcast with you this afternoon. If you go back far enough in the firm's history, I was actually, as an articling student, Marcus's quote-unquote roommate. Uh, We shared an office together. And now, you know, in this age of post-pandemic work, Marcus is relocated to Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. So on a Friday afternoon, rather than doing something fun on our Atlantic coast, he's uh, been kind enough to do this podcast with me. So thanks again, Marcus. I just wanted to make some very brief opening remarks The idea for this podcast came because I had the opportunity relatively recently, just in December of last year, to appear before the Court of Appeal on a Construction Act matter. And we received the uh, decision in January. And in the process of preparing for that appearance and drafting our factum and our, our oral submission, I noticed there was a trend that there has been a recent body of case law developing at the Court of Appeal level in this province, interpreting the Construction Act, both from the perspective of bigger picture, what is the purpose and intent behind this statute? How should it work as a piece of legislation that plays an important role in determining how priority disputes, payment disputes are resolved in a very important sector of Ontario's economy? And also, even interpreting some of those specific sections. How should they apply to those real world disputes where there may not be enough money to go around? And the reason that's happening is because when a payer goes insolvent, there is usually not enough money to pay all of the secured creditors, let alone unsecured creditors. So these competing priority interests and claims become extremely important at that time. And Also, because typically legislation, the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, BIA, Companies Creditors Arrangement Act, CCAA, come into play in these insolvency situations, a right of appeal lies to the Ontario Court of Appeal. So why am I making a big deal about that? Well, it is a little bit unique in our world as construction lawyers, because normally, if we're asking a court to interpret a section of a construction act, dispute, whether it's a trust claim or whether it's a lien claim, the case law is now pretty clear that an appeal from that issue lies to the divisional court. Uh, So as both a practical and a legal matter, what that means is that normally Ontario's divisional court is the authoritative court uh, in Ontario for interpretations of the Construction Act. To go beyond the divisional court, in my experience at least, is a little bit rare because you have to seek leave to appeal to the Ontario Court of Appeal, which is extremely hard to get. And I'll just say, you know, if you're going to go beyond there to the Supreme Court of Canada, obviously you have to seek leave and show that it's an issue of national importance or that there is conflicting case law between different provinces, which, uh, as you can imagine, if we're talking about an Ontario Construction Act issue, is virtually impossible 
to clear that hurdle. I think the Clarkson Lumber case from 1963 may be the last Supreme Court of Canada case on the you know Mechanics Lien Act legislation. But having said that, it is interesting that nonetheless there are these cases that have ended up in the Court of Appeals. So Marcus and I wanted to talk a little bit about that today, what we think the significance of that is, and what some of the takeaways, if you practice in this area, will be based on this recent body of case law from the highest court in this province. Uh, so I hope any listeners outside of Ontario aren't just completely turning off the podcast now. Maybe there's something uh, of general application here. But certainly, if you're practicing construction law in Ontario, I hope this will be useful for you. So maybe at this point, I will turn it over to my uh, friend and colleague, Marcus, to talk a little bit about the statutes that I just mentioned. Yeah, thank you, Brendan, for that uh, introduction. I'm not going to talk about the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act in any kind of detail because A, that is not our line of expertise, and B, it would go beyond what we're trying to do in this podcast. Um, But maybe just very briefly, the legislation we're going to focus on is the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. That title involves two concepts, insolvency and bankruptcy, and maybe just at the very highest level, we could talk about what those two terms mean because they're definitely not the same thing. Generally speaking, in, in bankruptcy law, insolvency is understood to mean person's inability to meet obligations as they become due or a person's ceasing to make payments as they become due. As soon as that occurs, a person is considered insolvent, which is not the same as bankruptcy. In order to be bankrupt under the Act, you actually have to be assigned into bankruptcy or there has to be a bankruptcy order made against you. Now, there's different kinds of of bankruptcies. I don't think we need to talk about that in any great detail. There's voluntary bankruptcy, involuntary bankruptcy, and deemed bankruptcy. Again, we're not going into any great detail. Uh, Voluntary bankruptcy, as the name suggests, um, involves a person's voluntary decision to assign themselves into bankruptcy. An involuntary bankruptcy is very much the opposite, where a person gets petitioned into bankruptcy by one or more than one creditors, and a deemed bankruptcy occurs uh, when a person fails to meet requirements for filing a proposal or fails to adhere to the terms of the proposal. So that just by very general uh, overview. What we are going to focus on here are the aspects of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act that most often arise in a construction lien context. And the most important, I would say, aspect of that is Section 67 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. That section provides that the property of a bankrupt that is divisible among that person's creditors does not comprise property held by the bankrupt in trusts for any other person. Now, that obviously um, becomes relevant when one talks about trust claims arising under the Construction Act. How are Construction Act trust claims dealt with in a bankruptcy? Do they survive bankruptcy or do they not survive a bankruptcy? And that is um, the area of law that the first Court of Appeal decision we want to talk about here deals with. 
Yeah, and thank you for that excellent summary, Marcus. I want to just now quickly interject, if I may, just to sort of give a little roadmap to our audience of where we're going next. I mentioned, obviously, we wanted to talk about these Court of Appeal cases. I think Marcus has teed it up nicely by going through some of the statutory regime and some of the issues that are engaged in these cases. We're going to start with a case. It's Guarantee Company of Canada versus Royal Bank of Canada. That's 2019 ONCA9. That was the case that Marcus alluded to, and he's going to start with a summary of that. Next, we're going to move to Urban Core Cumberland 2GP Inc. 3, which is, again, just so in case you're taking notes, you can find it on Canley, of course, but it's 2020 ONCA197. Then the third case we're going to move to it's a more recent decision. We're now into the year 2021. This is Del Bianco versus D Management Services Limited. That's 2021 ONCA 859. And then we're going to move to another decision, Scott Pacelli versus DuPont Developments LTD. And that is a 2022 decision. The Court of Appeal, the site there is... 2022 ONCA 757. And then last but not least, I alluded to a case that I argued at the end of last year, which, spoiler alert, we didn't win. Having said that, I will have some comments about that later, but the easiest way to refer to it is 33 Yorkville. It arose out of the Cressford insolvency, and the site is 2023 ONCA 1. And with that, I will turn it back to Marcus to take us back to the beginning of those five cases, the Guarantee Company versus Royal Bank case. Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, briefly talk about that. And as we did in the introduction, we're not going to talk about the case in great detail. We're not going to do great factual backgrounds. All we're going to do is talk about the main aspects and what it means for construction trusts in the face of a bankruptcy. So by way of background, Section 8 of the Construction Act, of course, provides that any amounts owing to or received by a contractor or a subcontractor on account of an improvement constitute a trust for the benefit of subcontractors or suppliers to the improvement. Now, as I said at the beginning, Section 67 provides that the property of a bankrupt that's divisible amongst its creditors in the case of a bankruptcy does not comprise property held in trust by the bankrupt for another person. So the question then is, is that Section 8 trust covered by Section 67 of the Bankruptcy Act? The Supreme Court of Canada in 1989, in a case called British Columbia versus Henry Sampson Bel Air Limited, held that in order for any trust um, be statutory or deemed to fall under Section 67 of the Act, required that trust to contain the three elements of a common law trust. That, of course, being certainty of intention, certainty of subject matter, and certainty of object. So in order for any trust to fall under Section 67, those three elements had to be present. Now, the problem arose in 2014, or came to light in 2014, in a lower court Ontario decision called Royal Bank of Canada versus Atlas Block. Now, in that case, 
a court found that a Section 8 trust did not contain all those three elements because the trust funds in that case had been commingled in a single account. So the trustee had taken the money received on various accounts, put them all in a general operating account. And by doing that, the court said that the certainty of subject matter was lost and therefore the trust funds did not amount to common law trust funds. Based on that, then Section 67 of the BIA did not extend to those trust funds and the lien claimants were out of luck. Now, the GCNA case that we mentioned breathed some light back into a lien claimants or trust claimants rights in case of a bankruptcy, because in that case, it said that mere commingling of the funds did not necessarily mean that the trusts lost their certainty of subject matter. And the court held that as long as those trust funds remained ascertainable, that was good enough and the trust funds could be considered common law trust funds. Now, what helped in this context was the fact that Section 8.1, which was newly introduced into the Construction Act with the recent amendments, um, requires trustees to deposit those trust funds in a certain manner. And that manner should help making sure that the funds remain ascertainable for the purposes of that GCNA case. And going forward, there's fairly good argument to be made that any trustees who comply with their requirements under Section 8.1 of the Act will have access to those trust funds and those trust funds will be kept out of the general funds that are divisible amongst the bankrupt's creditors. So that was it very high level on uh, GCNA versus RBC. The next case that Brendan alluded to um, talked about similar issues, but this time not in a BIA context, but in a CCAA context. So Brendan, um, why don't you talk about that one? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. And just quickly, before I get into Urban Core, I'll just remark that the GCNA versus Royal Bank case that you just ably summarized interestingly surprised me when it was released in 2019. I had been following that case and I thought it was going to go the other way. Now, Marcus knows that I'm a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan, so that just probably tells you that I have a unique ability to sort of not predict the correct outcome of things that are going to happen, whether it's a hockey series or an insolvency case. But I guess in fairness to me, I felt that the Atlas Block case had really, I think, weighed in favor of going the other way. And I think Marcus put his finger on it. The issue of commingling itself, why should it, as a practical matter, be the end of the inquiry if the funds are still ascertainable and particularly now with our new trust act provisions and the requirements that are supposed to be followed with that it would seem to me that the mere act of, of commingling should not be enough to simply destroy all the trust remedies of the various suppliers and trust beneficiaries below that payer and it may be that we over interpreted what atlas block actually stood for sometimes as lawyers were kind of guilty of that but i think i could I could say as a practical matter, having practiced in this area of law for 25 years now, that it's pretty evident to me that commingling is not a rarity. 
this is not some exotic practice that the Atlas Block people were engaged in that never happens. It's very common. So the reason I dwell on that a little bit is I saw GCNA as being perhaps a significant case moving the pendulum back a little bit in the other direction so that for people that are advising trust beneficiaries and lien claimants in a insolvency, it's not necessarily hopeless. The fact that you're in insolvency, you have to look very carefully at the specific facts of your situation and how the law may help your client. And I think you have to be prepared to advance those, those cases with some courage, because after all, if you don't, the law is not going to advance it. You're not going to get a remedy that might otherwise be available. For example, as was the case in the Royal Bank decision and in the decision I'm about to talk about a little bit now called Urban Core. And I gave the site earlier, so I won't repeat it. But this was a decision from 2020. And there's two real points I want to make with this case. One is, what did it have to say with respect to the purpose and intent of the Construction Act as a statute? And number two, what did it have to say about trust funds? In this specific case, funds impressed with the vendor's trust under Section 9 of the Act uh, and how those are to be dealt with in an insolvency. So to start with the bigger picture, there was a decision that came out around this time from the divisional court. As I said earlier, it was usually the divisional court that was the level at which these Construction Act pronouncements are made, called RSG Mechanical, where the lead claimants in that case essentially tried to argue that, look, we're lead claimants. This is a statute for our benefit. We say this is how you should interpret it. That should be the end of the inquiry. Our interpretation should be preferred because we're lead claimants. I may be oversimplifying a bit there, but not much. And so the divisional court, I think, correctly said, no, it's not that simple. The statute doesn't exist solely in a vacuum to advance the purposes of lead claimants. It has to be balanced as against the interests of other persons, including other established security interests and other established statutory rights. So to the extent, though, that anyone would interpret RSG as saying, okay, well, the Construction Act is about a panoply of interests balancing them, I think that may be a bit too far. And that's not really what the law is or should be. And I think so. I start right at the first paragraph of the uh, Urban Court decision. Uh, it was written by Justice Zarnett. And he said as follows, those involved in the construction industry add value to real estate by their provision of work and materials. In order to protect them against the risk of non-payment and the unjust enrichment of others, Ontario enacted the Construction Lien Act, RSO 1990, the CLA, now the Construction Act, RSO 1990, with a comprehensive scheme of liens, holdbacks, and trusts. One situation where the need for protection can be most acute is when contractors have approved a real estate project, have not been paid, and the owner becomes insolvent. Insolvency, however, is a federal matter with its own processes and priorities. So why did I read that whole paragraph and pay special attention to it? Because again, this is the highest court in our province. This is a recent 2020 decision. 
And I think this is a very pithy statement of what the purpose and intent of the Construction Act is with appropriate balance to other established legal rights, including, for example, federal insolvency matters with their own processes and priorities. So again, I I really do dwell on that a little bit because I think it's fundamentally important to understanding how these decisions are made and how these statutes are intended to operate together in a real world dispute where there's not enough money to pay everyone. There's going to be winners and losers in these disputes. And how do you have some predictability for your clients so that it's not, you know, as random as I was joking earlier about a leaf spend, just hoping this might be the year that we win. Like, how can we read these cases and give our clients good advice, some predictability? I think this is a fundamental principle, and it's why I dwell on it a little bit. Now, I also mentioned as counsel, you have to have some courage in bringing these cases forward. I also commend the counsel who are involved in this case. It was a creative argument. Again, Bowles went 0 for 2 on this. I thought they would lose this one too when I was watching this case because it seemed to me that there was an Ontario Court of Appeal decision from 2005 called Beltry Metal Products. And the judge hearing the uh, Urban Court case at first instance followed Beltry, which is not a controversial thing to do. A motions judge should follow the Court of Appeal. And that motion judge held. In this case, it was a dispute over Section 9 trust funds that the proceeds of sale from this land were not impressed with a trust. Relying on Veltri, he said that control by a CCAA monitor of a sales process or the receipt by the monitor of the proceeds of sale prevented a Section 9 trust arising. Since in this case, it was a condo, the sales were not made by the owner but by the monitor. In other words, this is not an owner just selling its land because it wants to sell it. It is an owner who's gone into an insolvency process, in this case, CCAA. They don't have control. The monitor has control. The monitor is accountable to the court. The monitor has sold. We've got Veltri decision from 2005, not that long ago. No brainer, right? Well, no, actually, the Court of Appeal reversed. and. I think for very good reason on these facts, because the funds at issue here, and this may be why every case, you know, the facts are so important, exceeded the amount of mortgage indebtedness. So if we're looking at this as a Construction Act priority problem, the mortgagee has priority to a certain extent. They get paid. There's money left over. There's other secured creditors that say, hey, there's no Section 9 trust arising based on Beltry. That money should go to us. The Court of Appeal disagreed that the fact that the sale was conducted by the monitor somehow deprived these funds of their trust character. They remain trust funds. And in this case, that surplus of sale under the terms of Section 9 of the Act, which says, that proceeds of sale of land are trust funds for the benefit of the persons who supplied labor services and materials to that improvement are available for distribution to those Section 9 trust beneficiaries. I think a logical decision, going right back to that first paragraph of Justice Zarnett that I took some time to read, which makes eminent sense in that context. In other words, 
you know, the purpose of this statute is fundamentally to protect those people that supply services and materials and are unpaid. Not ignoring other statutes, not ignoring other legal rights and obligations of other parties. But in this case, there was no reason to prefer those other parties. It was somewhat arbitrary on these facts. Now, I would caution that keep in mind what the purpose of Section 9 is. It's so that you've got a construction project, the owner is getting the benefit of the labor and materials. They can't just go and sell the property, abscond with the money, and leave the people who did the work high and dry. That, that money they get from sale is now impressed with a trust. Subject, of course, to the rights of other creditors, in this case, mortgagee. But once that mortgagee has made a recovery and there's a surplus, who gets that money? In this case, it was those trust beneficiaries because they still had a Section 9 claim as against those funds. Now, I think the result would have been different if there had been a shortfall. I don't think the Urban Core case stands for the proposition that the other priorities under the Act, including a mortgagee's claim, are somehow ousted. What it does say is that if there are trust funds available, just because it's a sale process conducted by a monitor doesn't deprive those funds of their fundamental trust character. So I will then pass it over to Marcus now. If you want to add anything, if I left anything out of Urban Core that's important, for example, please do so. Or if you prefer, you could move on to the Dalbianco case. Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add other than maybe saying that I agree that the scope is likely limited in the way you you described, that had there been a shortfall in the proceeds, then um, the result would very likely have been different. But as you allude to, it, it's clear that the pendulum generally seems to have swung back from the days of Veltri and Atlas Block. So th there's no longer this reflexive standing back by lien claimants as soon as they hear the words bankruptcy. They actually can now somewhat be confident that their claims can, in fact, and will likely survive an insolvency. So, so I agree with you on that. The next case I think we're going to talk about was the Del Bianco and Deem Management Services. That is a somewhat technical decision, so I don't think there's a need to talk about that in any great detail. The, the underlying issue in that case was, as often, a priority dispute between lien claimants and a uh, mortgagee. The case was concerned with a registered third mortgage and its priority over the proceeds of sale from a receivership process. What the bottom line of this case is, and that's really all we need to say about that case, I think, is that mortgagees will not be allowed to lie in the weeds while advancing funds for the project and then somehow later attempt to gain priority by registering their mortgages. So what had happened in that case is monies had been advanced and then years later when the mortgagees tried to gain priority, they secured the mortgage by registering a mortgage, but again, years after the funds were first advanced. And the court said that by doing so, or by proceeding in that manner, the funds were not actually advanced in respect of the mortgage, which meant that Section 78.6 did not apply. And since the mortgage was taken a long time after the advances were made, it wasn't taken with the intention to secure the financing, so it wasn't a building mortgage either. So by proceeding as they did, the mortgagees lost priority over the lien claimants. 
Thanks, Marcus. And there was also a procedural aspect to the Bianco case. It went to the point that Brendan spoke to at the beginning of this podcast, actually, that normally an appeal from an order made under the Construction Act lies to the divisional court under Section 71, subsection 1 of the Construction Act. But appeals and bankruptcy matters go to the Court of Appeal based on Section 193 of the BIA. And in the Bianco case, the court held that the main question to determine which appeal route one had to choose was whether the order under appeal is one granted in reliance on the jurisdiction under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And if that is the case, then the appeal provisions of that statute are applicable. And in this case, the Bianco case, part reliance on the BIA was good enough. And so that's why that was the proper route for appeal. Another decision I wanted to touch on, this is a 2022 Court of Appeal decision, was the Scott Pacelli and Easter Limited versus DuPont Developments Limited decision that Brendan mentioned earlier. And this case held for a very specific point, which went to the proper interpretation of Section 78, subsection 3 of the Construction Act. And that point was that a mortgagee's priority under Section 78, subsection 3 of the Act, extends not only to the principal of the mortgage, but also to the interest and other related enforcement charges, which obviously expands the amount of the priority. So the cases that we have spoke to thus far were from 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022. And the Court of Appeals started off 2023 with another one which I would like to pass off to Brendan as he actually argued the case. Yeah, thank you very, very much, Megan. And we gave the site for this case at the outset of the podcast. And it's it's kind of funny because it's 2023 ONCA1, which I think means it was the first decision released of 2023. We actually argued it in December 2022. I uh, was very fortunate to have my partner here at the firm, John Paul Ventrella, argue it with me as co-counsel. I had Rob Canali of Canali Construction Law. He's a construction law specialist. And once upon a time, maybe more years ago than I'll mention, uh, Rob and I used to practice together, actually. He was on for another lead claimant in the same case who was making the same argument as us. And then also Adam Patel didn't have a chance to appear at the hearing, but he was also counsel for one of the lead claimants that helped us with the materials. So I wanted to acknowledge them. And I also want to acknowledge, obviously, from McCarthy's, who successfully uh, represented the uh, respondent in that case, the receiver for 33 Yorkville residences. That was Jeff Hall, Alexander Steele, and they also had Heather Meredith working on that case as well. And we really enjoyed doing this case with them, even though, of course, we didn't like the end result. But that, you know, hey, if you're going to litigate to this level, you've got to be prepared for the consequences. So, boy, where do I start? So, I. I think this one maybe falls into the category of if the earlier cases we were talking about in the podcast, maybe through, you know, the pendulum back in a particular direction or in the lien claimant slash trust claimant's favor, this one and the predecessor case from late 2022, which you discussed, Megan, maybe indicate that, you know, that pendulum only swings so far. It's not going to swing all the way completely in the other direction. So that case, just to recap quickly, uh, had to do with Section 78 sub 3 of the Construction Act, which deals with prior mortgages and really had to do with the definition of an advance. And I think that the significance of that Scott Pacelli decision was that the word advance has been interpreted by the Supreme Court of Canada 
to include these additional ancillary charges that are incurred in the course of advancing money under a mortgage loan. So, yeah, not, you know, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, a huge surprise, the result of that case that the Supreme Court of Canada's definition of advance would apply to how we understand the word advance under Section 78 sub 3, priority contest under the Construction Act with a prior mortgage. So what were we doing in this case? We, I think, argued a point that was conceded as being a creative argument. Um, and admittedly, it was. And I said earlier, I think you have to have some courage in these cases. And it seemed to me that this was a reasonable argument to make. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we could say that, you know, maybe this was a bit too creative. But on the other hand, I go back to Justice Zarnett's comment in the 2020 Urban Court decision. What is the purpose of the Construction Act? It's to protect people who supply services and materials and are unpaid, including in an insolvency. So what did we have here? We had a contest essentially where there was not enough money to go around. This is not under Section 78 sub 3. This is under 78 sub 2, which is the subsection that deals with a building mortgage. And this is a very common situation. You have a lender who is financing a construction project. They are at risk to the extent of the holdback. In other words, the holdback that the owner ought to have retained but didn't goes to the lien claimants first, not to that building lender with a building mortgage. What happens, though, where there's more than one lender who meets the definition of a building mortgage under the Act? Not necessarily an uncommon situation. In fact, this was, I would argue, a somewhat typical situation where you had a fairly major condominium project downtown Toronto, 33 York Mill Avenue, being developed by Cressford, who went into insolvency. And there were at least four different, pretty significantly sized condominium projects downtown Toronto that went into receivership as part of that process. This was one of them. There were, in fact, two of the secured lenders who could be considered building mortgages for the purposes of Section 78 sub 2 of the Act. So I'll just read it quickly. The section at issue says, where a mortgagee takes a mortgage with the intention to secure the financing of an improvement, the liens arising from the improvement have priority over that mortgage, and any mortgage taken out to repay that mortgage to the extent of any deficiency in the holdbacks required to be retained by the owner under Part 4, irrespective of when that mortgage or the mortgage taken out to repay it is registered. So the two competing interpretations that were before the Court of Appeal in this case were, one, by the receiver, that the deficiency in the holdback is a single fund, and once that deficiency in the holdback has been satisfied, the lien claimant's claim for priority has been satisfied in full, and there's no longer any deficiency, and therefore no longer any priority claim to assert over a second mortgage. In other words, you get your 10% once, and that's it. The 10% pool is a holdback fund to be recovered, and that's it. The other argument, the one we were making, was that you have to start with what is the purpose of this statute, and what is the plain language of this section? It seemed to me that it was referring to that mortgage 
in any mortgage taken out to repay that mortgage in the singular. In other words, over a single building mortgage. So on that reading, you have a priority claim that you assert over that mortgage to the extent of the deficiency in the holdback. And to the extent that the lien claimant is still unpaid, they could then assert that deficiency in the holdback as a claim over against the second building mortgage. And the argument we were making was essentially, look, that's not a windfall to the lien claimants because if they recover what they're supposed to be paid, that is satisfaction of their claim. And that is, after all, what the statute is intended to facilitate. So why would we change the meaning of the words, the plain meaning of the words to get to a different result, which is that you have a holdback claim, that's the cap, that's the limit to which you can claim. And then at that point, you have no longer a claim that you can assert against a subsequent building mortgage. Or put it this way, one way of looking at it is, hey, why should the lien claimants get the holdback twice? But what we were arguing is, why should two building mortgages be exposed for less than 10% holdback? If the holdback fund is only recoverable against one building mortgage, the second building mortgage has no liability. Should that be the way that the statute operates? In other words, wouldn't they be able to say at the outset of the project, especially if they're being asked to be a second or third lender, increased risk that if things go wrong, well, we're going to be exposed to the extent of the holdback. So the court, I think, gave us uh, a very fair hearing, and I'm giving a lot more color here, I appreciate, because we weren't counsel on these other cases, and I was on this one, so I'm able to give you a bit more detail. I think there's a uh, an old saying in legal circles that a judge writes a decision, not necessarily for the benefit of the winner, but for the benefit of the loser, so that they can understand that they had a fair hearing. They can understand why the court reached the result that it did. I think certainly the dialogue that we had with the Court of Appeal at the hearing in December, I certainly appreciated. It was a very respectful dialogue. It was very thoughtful interchange and almost a conversation, if I dare put it that way, with the panel. The sort of thing as a lawyer, you hope you get the opportunity to do in your career. And I think if I could segue just briefly to maybe more of a practice point here, I would urge any counsel that are listening to this, particularly if you're construction lawyers and you don't necessarily get a chance to do a lot of appeal work, that when you do, be prepared, I think, to answer questions from the bench, because that is the most important part of appellate advocacy in my view. And so that's why I say we had a fair hearing, because this panel asked tough questions of both sides. They took it away. They issued a decision. Somewhat to my surprise, it came out very early in January. So we didn't have to wait around too long for it because the hearing was, itself was in December. And I think, as I indicated earlier, they went with the receiver's argument, and so the appeal was dismissed. So what does that mean? In effect, what it means is that when you are looking at these sections, Section 78 sub 2 is one of them, Section 78 sub 5 is another, where you have a building mortgage, in the case of 78 sub 2, you have a subsequent mortgage, in the case of Section 78 sub 5, that when they're talking about a deficiency in the holdback, you have, in other words, an identifiable fund that if the lien claimants recover it, 
that's the end of what they're able to claim as a priority claim over a mortgagee under one of these sections. You don't get an opportunity to do it again. I think the door is pretty firmly closed on those arguments now, I would say. And in terms of, again, being able to advise our clients and understanding where we stand in these types of situations, I think the takeaway is that although, yes, this statute is intended to protect the rights of unpaid suppliers, especially in an insolvency, that protection only goes so far as the Construction Act will permit and so far as the rights of other creditors who have other statutes protect their interests as well will permit. So in this particular case, once the deficiency in the holdback is satisfied, there's no longer a priority claim to assert, and that will be the result. So I think if you are acting for a client in an insolvency, I would urge you to still think creatively Read these cases, understand them, and think about, do these fact situations apply? Because after all, if the council in the Urban Corps case had said, well, Feltry, that's the end of the story, you know, the law would not have advanced. We wouldn't have that decision. Doesn't mean you're always going to win, but I think it's worth the effort. And for example, now we do now have these other decisions in the Scott Pacelli and the 33 Yorkville case, I think, which show the extent to which the Section 78 priorities could work, which is a very practical real-world situation where there's not enough money to pay the lenders and the suppliers in full. How do these priority disputes get resolved? So thank you for listening to us today. I would like to maybe now ask Megan and Marcus if they have any final thoughts. We could sum this up. So thank you, Brendan, for that summary, which was much more detailed than my summary of that case would have been. Probably given the fact, as you said, that you spent much more time on that than I have. I just wanted to mention at the at the end, given all this judicial activity in this uh, area, Brendan, as you may know, recently took over the authorship of conduct of lien trust and adjudication proceedings from Duncan Glayhold. This is his second year as an author. And given all this judicial activity, um, Brendan decided that it was time to add a chapter to the book on lien proceedings and the fate of lien claimants in insolvency context. So um, what we have discussed, you will find in the 2023 edition of that book. And um, I'm sorry about that shameless plug to our upcoming new edition, but it is coming out. I just sent off corrections to the proofs to the publisher last week. So you can expect the 2023 edition of that book on the bookshelves in May. So any need to revisit these topics, you will find answers in that edition. Thank you both, Brendan and Marcus. I think we've really given our listeners a great sense of the recent developments in the case law surrounding bankruptcies and insolvencies in the construction context. And I do look forward to the 2023 edition coming out of Conduct of Lean, Trust and Adjudication Proceedings to give a summary of our discussion today. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. As always, if you have any questions, please email us at info at and we'll be happy to continue the discussion of today's podcast offline. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.